All right, well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. Let's open them up to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. The book of Daniel, chapter 1. Uh, Last Sunday, I tried to prepare us for this book by giving you something of uh, the historical circumstances uh, surrounding the book of Daniel. Uh, We talked a lot about history and uh, how the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, came against little Judah in 605 B.C. And we saw in the first two verses of our chapter uh, that vessels of Yahweh, of the true God from his temple, were taken and placed in the temple of a pagan god, one of the Babylonian gods. But it wasn't just vessels that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and his men. There were also people. Some of Israel's finest young people were taken. And so let's read this together. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first seven verses. And remember, this is the very word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, And Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So Daniel and his friends were part of the first wave of exiles taken into Babylon. But they were not the last. As we mentioned last week, there would be two more waves of exiles after this one. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel is an example of someone who was taken in the second wave of exiles after Daniel and his friends. And then, of course, in 586 B.C., uh, the prophet Jeremiah was a witness to that third and final siege in which Solomon's temple was utterly destroyed, the city of Jerusalem was utterly ravaged, And all but the absolute sickest and weakest of the people were taken away by the Babylonians in chains. Let me ask you, can you imagine being taken by force from your homeland and brought to a foreign land? Can you picture everything you have being taken away from you And you being relocated to a strange place with people who worship strange gods and speak a strange language. 
Psalm 137 tells us a little bit what, about what this was like for the Israelites in Babylon. The first verses say, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, as terrible as this was for God's people, Daniel wants us to note that everything is happening here as part of the sovereign plan and will of God. None of what is happening here with Nebuchadnezzar showing up in Jerusalem, taking these vessels, taking these exiles, none of this has taken Yahweh by surprise. And none of this is departing one iota from his divine plan. As verse 2 says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And last week we hit hard on this. We, we talked about how this view of a massive, all-powerful, all-sovereign God is what gave Daniel and his friends confidence in the face of many severe trials. But there is a question we did not get to last time, and it's an important one before we go deep into the book of Daniel. It's this question. Why would God do this to his people? Why would God allow his temple to be destroyed? Why would he ordain that his Ark of the Covenant with the tablets from Mount Sinai disappear forever? Why would he will the destruction of the holy city Jerusalem? If Israel is the nation that God took to himself as his prized possession, why would he have his people, the people he called his children, why would he have them starving to death in sieges, struck down by swords, being carried away with hooks in their noses into exile like Daniel and his friends? To which you might say, Justin, who cares? Who cares why God did something he did 2,600 years ago? We're not Israelites. We're not Babylonians. We are Americans living in the 21st century. What does any of this have to do with us? Well, the answer is simple. While the times have changed, our God has not we today are dealing with the very same God that the people of Judah dealt with. And his expectations have not changed. His moral standards have not changed. It is the very nature of God to pour out blessings on all that is good and to pour out curses on that which is evil. When we talk about God being holy, don't think of God's holiness as a static attribute. No, it is constantly in action. God's holiness is constantly, continually reacting to sin with revulsion and judgment and reacting to goodness with blessing and favor. So if God's own people, Judah, acted so wickedly, 
that God would bring such a severe judgment upon them, surely it is in our best interest to learn from their failure. Certainly we want to know what aroused God's anger so much that he would do this to his own chosen people of the Old Testament. And we want to examine ourselves, and we want to examine our nation, and we want to make sure that we're not doing the same things and provoking God in the same ways. Mount Hermon, we know the end of the story. We know that in the end, all of God's people, all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, will be safe and secure because of the blood of Jesus. But God still sometimes expresses His displeasure through judgment in this world, in space and in time and in the pages of history. And though Christians are ultimately safe from God's eternal condemnation, it doesn't mean we don't experience something of God's discipline here and now. God disciplines all those He loves. And throughout church history, there have been seasons where God expressed displeasure with backsliding and sin, even among His own people. Moreover, God has a track record a long track record of bringing judgment on wicked nations. And there is no reason for us to think that he isn't now or won't in the future bring judgment on these United States if we follow in the pattern of those wicked nations. So if we can learn from Judah's mistakes and avoid any amount of God's displeasure, we should certainly do so. And so that's why this question matters. What is the question? Why did God bring this judgment on Judah? And so this morning, I simply want to draw your attention to three witnesses. Three witnesses in the Bible who tell us why God brought this judgment on Judah. I could call on more than three, but we're calling on three number one i call on the writer of second kings so let me ask you to turn to second kings 24 second kings 24 um, if you are using one of the pew bibles you can find this on page 331 Um, there are some sermons i preach where you don't have to look at your bible all that much you're going to want your bible out today okay Um, because the witnesses are going to be there you're going to want to see these passages so 331 second kings chapter 24 and here we are told in clear language why it is that god gave judah over to the babylonians so beginning in second kings chapter 24 and verse 1 in his days nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came up and jehoiakim became his servant for three years and then he turned and rebelled against him And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke by his servant the prophets. Surely, here's the key verse, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. So who is this Manasseh who caused such a stench in the nose of the Lord 
that God would bring this judgment on Judah. Well, Manasseh was king of Judah just before Josiah, who is King Jehoiakim's father. So this is King Jehoiakim's uh, uh, two generations up. What had wicked King Manasseh done that was so evil? Well, for one thing, he set up pagan altars or altars to pagan gods in the temple. Uh, He led the people of God to worship false gods, and not just to worship false gods anywhere, but actually in the holy temple itself. Uh, No wonder God allowed the Babylonians to take away the holy vessels of the temple. Matthew Henry says, See the righteousness of God. His people had brought the images of other gods into his temple. Now he suffers the vessels of the temple to be carried away into the treasuries of those other gods. In other words, it isn't God who first gave those vessels over to paganism. It was Judah who did so. It was Judah who used those vessels to worship false gods in the temple itself. And now God sends those vessels away. But as if that wasn't bad enough, Manasseh did something else. He led the people of God to practice child sacrifice. In fact, Manasseh himself burnt his own son as a sacrificial offering to Baal. This is what the writer of 2 Kings is referring to when he twice mentions innocent blood. God brought severe judgment on Judah because these people had become murderers of their own children. So what about us? Are we guilty of the sins of Manasseh as we think about our land has our land not turned to the worship of false gods even in church buildings across our country do we not often see the gods of money and fame and self-righteousness being lifted up and honored instead of God In paganism, people worship their gods through gluttony, through sex, through drunkenness. Do we not see those same gods being worshipped today? Is there any doubt that our culture, which was at least once somewhat Christian, is regressing backwards towards paganism? Do you hear about what's happening on some of the college campuses in our country today. Some weeks ago, my family, we visited Colonial Williamsburg. And on the front page of the local newspaper there in Williamsburg was a picture of the students at William and Mary College celebrating the Hindu, fe- the Hindu festival of Holi. Uh, on the last full moon day of the Hindu month Falgun, students gather in a huge field to, quote, silence stereotypes and celebrate their differences by throwing water and colored powder all over each other. And this was just part of a whole week of celebrations at William & Mary that included a LGBT pride parade and a dress-in-drag ball. Our culture thinks this is progress. We're moving forward. But we're actually just reverting back to the same pagan practices that people participated in millennia ago. And so yes, there is idolatry here in our land, just as it was for Judah. What about child sacrifice? How many children were murdered this week 
slaughtered at the altar of convenience and sexual promiscuity. Did you know that 18,200 children were aborted in the United States this week? 18,200. By the end of the year, it will be close to 1 million children killed in abortion clinics in the United States alone. Right now in our land, if you are a baby conceived in your mother's womb, you have a one in five chance of being killed through abortion. Do you think God is going to hold us guiltless for this? Does not the blood of little ones cry out for justice? Are we not a nation with innocent blood on our hands, much more so than Manasseh and the people of Judah? And should we be surprised if judgments from God come our way when such sin as this is actively promoted in our land? Frankly, not only are children being murdered, but others are profiting through the process. Our nation serves the God of mammon, and child sacrifice is just another act of worship to that dark God. I don't know what earthly power God might use to bring judgment on this land, but I don't think we should expect anything less. Our nation needs to know what it is to repent. Now, I I must say this, and I rejoice to be able to say this. There is forgiveness. There is healing. There is mercy for, for any woman who has had an abortion. She must come to God and confess her sin, turn from such things, But God is full of grace to every person who repents. He is full of forgiveness. He is full of compassion and love. And in the same way, God can show forgiveness and mercy and healing and compassion to our land if we as a nation will confess our sins and turn from such acts. It is shameful that the leading candidate for the highest office in our land right now received the Planned Parenthood Margaret Sanger Award for her lifetime of work to keep abortion available and legal. When Manasseh is being honored in our land rather than being rebuked, we're in trouble. Unless you think, well, then let's go for the other guy. Let me just remind you, he was for partial birth abortion until five minutes ago when he decided to run for president. We're in trouble. I wonder if the candidates we have aren't an expression of the judgment of God upon our sin. We as Christians must be a light in the darkness, a voice crying out to our culture that God alone is to be worshipped over all and that every human life is worth celebrating and protecting. This is part of what brought the fall of Judah. But there is a second witness. My second witness is telling us why God brought such severe judgment upon Judah, and it is the writer of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. To turn there, 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 388. Page 388 in those Bibles. Here in 2 Chronicles 36, we read of that third and final siege that results in the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being ravaged. 
And our concern is to know why. Why did God do this? And the chronicler gives us an answer. So let's begin reading 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 17. Verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So we're told here that this great judgment came upon Judah to fulfill what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And this word from Jeremiah had to do with the Sabbath. Basically, the people of God had stopped keeping the Sabbath, including God's principles about the land, the fields. Uh, The fields were to have a Sabbath. God had commanded his people to build the principle of Sabbath into their lives, and that included making sure that every field used for crops was left unplanted one year in seven so that the land would be refreshed. Well, Judah did not obey God in this, And so he made up for it by giving the land 70 years of rest by removing the people of Judah from the land altogether. That 70-year period is either from the first wave of exiles till the day the people returned to Jerusalem, or it could be the 70 years between the destruction of the first temple and the completion of the second temple. So here is what God had said about the Sabbath through Jeremiah. And here I'm just reading to you from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah says, Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, Jeremiah, go to a very public place. I have something you need to get to the masses. Say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do not work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever." 
And the people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. You will flourish. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. And so when the chronicler talks about that this was fulfilling the word of Jeremiah, this is what he's talking about. Now let's get to the heart of this, okay? God gave the Sabbath to man as a love gift. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the whole point of this Sabbath principle is that while we should love God's gifts, there must be a time when we put God's gifts aside and actually enjoy fellowship with Him Himself. We must never love the gifts more than the giver. We should never get so caught up in the stuff of this world even our good and holy callings, so caught up in those that we are failing to regularly enjoy the presence of God. Fellowship with God, honoring God, these are the highest joys of this life. The land that God gives you to work, the work that He gives you to do, your family, Your possessions, these are all wonderful gifts, but God calls you to regularly rest from those in order to focus on Him and to know Him and to know Him. And when I look at our culture, I see a culture that is running here, running there. We got this to do, we got that to do, we got to do this over here, get over there. And there's never time to just be still and know that He is God. We have forgotten what it is to give God his time, to give God his due. We live on the air he provides, we use the strength he gives, we enjoy the pleasures he created for us, but we seem to have no time for him. We run, run, run. There's always so much to be done, places to be, things to accomplish, people to see. And God somehow gets the short end of the shrift. Even on Sundays, it has become commonplace for Christians to act as if they're too busy to enjoy the day with God. For some reason, it makes me think of that song, The Cat's in the Cradle. Remember that song, The Cat's in the Cradle? And right, the, 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 the son is always wanting to spend time with his dad, and the dad is saying, I, I want to spend time with you. I, I really do, but I've got so much to do. It'll happen later, son, I promise. I promise when I get things right, I'll spend time with you. I think sometimes that's how we treat God which is blasphemy to treat God that way. God, I know I ought to be spending more time with you. I ought to be in church. I ought to be worshiping with your people. I ought to be hearing from your word. I ought to be singing you your praises. I ought to be knowing your special presence as this day has been set aside for. But but God, the grass has got to be cut, God. And you know, we went to the beach on yesterday, so I couldn't do it yesterday. It's got to be done on Sunday. Do you remember the promise that God made in Isaiah 58? He said, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and if you call the Sabbath a delight 
and a holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Mount Hermon, I have no idea what God means when he says he will cause us to ride on the heights of the earth, but I like it. It sounds like a good thing. It sounds like something we should want. New strength, new encouragement. It it makes me think of that passage where he talks about he'll cause us to soar like eagles, right? Rise up with wings like eagles. So I'm picturing a, a fresh life, a freshness of encouragement and spiritual energy that comes to us when we stop our busy lives and spend a day with God. Judah was judged because she was too busy for God. She didn't have time for him. And we don't want to follow in that path. Well, finally, our third witness, our third witness to the crimes of Judah and the reasons why God brought judgment is the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. It's amazing because Isaiah wrote many years before the time of Daniel, and yet his prophecy about Judah was dead on And to see God's indictment of Judah, uh, you don't have to turn any further than Isaiah chapter 1. So just turn there, Isaiah chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, page 566. I want us to begin reading Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 21. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. He calls Judah his enemy. He calls Judah his foe. These are his people. These are his children. One of the messages that we hear from the prophet Isaiah over and over again is that God is threatening judgment because of social injustice. Social injustice. In particular, the rich and the powerful of Judah were only further enriching themselves while taking advantage of the weaker and the poorer. At the same time, those who were in the most need, the orphans and the widows, were being left helpless and unprotected. The people of Israel were to be a people known for their hospitality and their care. People in other nations were to know that if they came to Judah, they could find a safe haven there, a place of refuge, a place of love. In Judah, the farmers were to leave the gleanings of their crops for the poor to gather. Uh, In Judah, it was not about making as much profit as possible. It was about running your business, caring for your family and your workers, but also caring for those in desperate circumstances. In Judah, you were to tithe your income, especially part of your harvest, 
And according to Deuteronomy 14, a portion of that was to be used to care for the widows, to care for those in need of care. Judges were to be fair. They were never to take a bribe. They were never to prefer the wealthier and the more powerful over those of less means. Remember, our God is a God who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing, Deuteronomy 10, 18. But Judah had turned from this. Judah had turned into a, a culture that no longer cared for the hurting and the needing, the, the, the weary sojourner, the widow, the orphan. And how serious was this in the sight of God? How much did this make his anger burn? Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, God told Judah... Your worship is an abomination to me. The very things I called you to do, I now can't stand them. Why? Because they were coming to him with sacrifice and praise while at the same time they were back at home living in injustice. It's it's like the Christian who comes to church on Sunday and praises God and sings hymns of love to him and then goes back and Monday through Saturday is taking advantage of his employees, ripping off his clients, caring little for the poor in the neighborhood around him. And God says that man's worship on Sunday is an abomination to him. Better to to stay home in bed on Sunday morning than to come and be a hypocrite and offer that kind of worship to God. God promised in verse 24 that if Judah did not turn from this kind of injustice, he would come upon them in judgment. And so he did. Mount Hermon, certainly, as we look at our nation, we see that we have much to repent of. We find ourselves in many ways guilty of the same crimes that provoked God's wrath against Judah. Yes, there are differences between Judah and the United States. The U.S. has never been in a covenant relationship with God the way Judah was in a covenant relationship with God. But we definitely have reason to be gravely concerned about the wickedness in our land and we ought to be leading the way in calling our land to true repentance. And we cannot let the fear of being politically incorrect or being mocked as fools or called old-fashioned or regressive, those things cannot silence us. The church is to be a pillar and a bulwark of truth, a lighthouse shining truth to a world that may be putting their fingers in their ears not wanting to hear it. 
But as we close, let me just ask you about your own life. And let me ask you to ask yourself these questions. Am I guilty of loving other things more than God? Am I guilty of idolatry? Worshiping the stuff of this world and living for the pleasures of this world more than for knowing God and enjoying God? Am I guilty of being too busy for God? Rejecting the love gift that He gave us as far as Sabbaths to refresh and encourage our souls? Do I find it all too easy to find a reason to be out of worship with His people on Sundays? Am I guilty of despising the widow or the orphan? Am I guilty of taking advantage of others or of cheating the system or of being unfair and unprincipled towards others? You see, friends, the Word of God is a mirror and we need to put this mirror before us and we need to examine ourselves. How can we call our nation to repentance if we don't lead the way? What do we see? We see our guilt. We see how far we all fall short. So now hear these words of God. And these words are true only because of Jesus Christ. It's Isaiah 118. Isaiah 118. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If we come to our God this morning hating our sins, acknowledging our sins, longing to be rid of them, and looking to God for forgiveness, we will find that He will not only wash us and make us clean, but that He will give us precious promises to be different in the days ahead. Having been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, resting in God's love, resting in God's promises, we can look to this afternoon, we can look to this coming week, we can look to the years ahead, and we can resolve to worship God only. We can resolve to care and to be a voice for the dignity of human life. We can be committed to giving God His day and the time He is due. And we can be resolved to treat all people with kindness and justice, and compassion, and fairness. And as followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing short of that should mark us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.